Hi, this is Robert Cahoon on The Pulse, and I am with uh, William B. Cahoon, my dad, uh, for yet another interview on The Pulse. So uh, it's great to be with you, Dad, for this interview. And I've got a summary of Dad's life to start off with, and then uh, also up a whole range of sections of his life and share some of the best stories with you as well. So, um, Dad, you were born in Farley Farm, about five miles east of Salisbury. Um, you had the adjacent farm, about 100 acres, um, which the Paws belonged, the first cousins, and you grew up with nine children, of which you were the youngest. You had lots of ponies, surrounded by woods. An ideal childhood in the pre-war years included cows, pigs, gardens, horses, which um, your mother used to breed. And in 1938, you were born in 1934, you were four, uh, you went on... Uh, holiday in Switzerland to chalet in Lenzahida for three months um, but 1939 came and that was obviously the war there was food rationing uh, your father was away most of the time and Bobby your brother who was at Michael University joined the Canadian Air Force aged 19 and in 1943 you moved to Woodbridge in Suffolk um, as your father's firm Manganese Bronze and um, was bombed out in London was compulsory moved to Birkenhead um, and Ipswich. So the move that you had was epic. There was no petrol, so you had to move the whole farm, horse and cart, over five days, including chickens, farming and livestock. And um, at first, you moved to a large suburban house to the horror of the neighbours until you started producing milk, butter, eggs and everything, which were all in short supply at that time. Uh, a year later, during the war, you bought Martel Harm Hill Farm, 400 acres for £12,000, and Margaret, your sister, ran the dairy. Um, Elizabeth, uh, other sister, ran the arable size. Your mother was a, and had a foreman in charge. So in 1942, uh, you went off to Forest Prep School. The school was originally in Swanage, um, but due to the risk of German invasion, uh, was relocated to Penhouse uh, near Amersham and moved back to Swanage in 1944. That's on the south coast of the UK. So it's a very Christian school with short service every day and two on Sunday. Uh, you're very homesick, but generally enjoyed it. And uh, the active routine it encouraged. Uh, the first day going there, you remember crossing London in a taxi being rehearsed by the Lord's Prayer, which you were expected to know at the time. Uh, so when you returned to Swanage, it was by steam train from London Waterloo Station, one of the main stations in London. And 1948, you moved to Oundle. That's a boarding school in Northamptonshire. It's a grocer's company, public school. Uh, the school's quite tough, included corporate punishment, even ministered by prefects. Each term involved a week in the workshops which gave a good founding basic skills of carpentry, metalwork and foundry. You had a very good housemaster, Dudley Heesom. His nickname was Drip, uh, who was head of history and instilled an interest in history, which you have retained. And it was very good music school. The whole school, 650 boys performed the B minor mass in Peterborough Cathedral. I think Handel's Messiah as well, you mentioned. Um, it didn't really excel at anything, but it managed a comfortable pass in most things. And in 1953, he started national service in the army with the Royal Artillery, which was compulsory military service at the time. Um, you had 10 weeks basic training, which was mainly square bashing. It was a complete mix from all backgrounds, which was an education in itself. And you applied for an accepted officer training, took another 16 weeks at Mons Barracks and Aldershot. On passing this, it was quite tough. You were commissioned as a second, second lieutenant. Um, you lucked out of being posted to Hong Kong, and after four weeks in a troop ship with stops at Aden, Colombo, and Singapore, you arrived in Hong Kong, stationed at Setcong with new territories about 10 miles from the Chinese border. Uh, your operational role in the army was to stop the Chinese from taking Hong Kong, as the Japanese had done in 1942. Uh, you were in charge of six searchlights that were meant to provide uh, artificial moonlight by pointing to the clouds so the troops could see their way through the paddy fields. As the Chinese used Hong Kong as their main outlet for exports, it was very unlikely that they would try to occupy the territory. Uh, but you had a jeep and a driver, Chinese Batman, dressed for dinner every night in the mess. I uh, thought it arrived and it was the most enjoyable time of your life. It spent most weekends going down to Hong Kong for sailing and socialising. And you also managed a two-week trip to Japan, which we climbed Mount Fuji, which I think was in your pyjamas. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Mount Fuji in your pyjamas. So, <laughs> um, so arranged to be discharged in Hong Kong, made your own way home via Australia, managed to stay on a sheep farm in, in New South Wales, 
visiting relatives in New Zealand and Canada and stayed with contacts in the USA. So September 1958, went up to Pembroke College, Oxford to read PPE, thanks to your housemaster who persuaded them to let, let me in. I'm sure it was boys club at that time and you were let in. Uh, Oxford was a good experience, made several lifelong friends, rode for the college, having rode at Oundle, enjoyed being really fit. However, failed an exam at the end of year two and it meant staying on another year. It agreed that you would join Manganese Bronze, um, which is your your father's firm. I left, but did a period of time getting experience at two other firms, Rustin Bacaris and Joseph Lucas. This meant my father had retired by the time I joined, uh, that you joined Manganese Bronze. Spent 18 months visiting all the factories in the group, getting familiar with all the products and methods in each. Then became PA to the managing director, a very nice man called John Neville, and would eventually follow him to run the company. But unfortunately, he became ill with a brain tumour, which diminished your chance of succession as Dennis Paul was appointed chairman. Uh, he arranged that, I went to that you went to California to set up a distribution company for Norton Motorcycles. This went very well as the Norton Commando was the bike to have. And for a short period, we increased the, you increased the sales west of the Mississippi from 350 per annum to 7,000 per annum in three years. You then returned to the UK and was put in charge of all sales worldwide. So at this time, 1972, your main competitor, BSA Triumph, which was 10 times bigger than Norton Villiers, went into liquidation as the Heath Conservative government asked to take over BSA Triumph uh, with a grant of five million in order to salvage the industry. Uh, your plan was to shut the Triumph Meridian plant near Coventry and put all the production into BSA Birmingham, which in its heyday had produced 10,000 uh, motorbikes per annum. But this was a time of extreme unions in the 1970s. The survival plan never got off the grounds. The Meridian workers refused the offer of work in Birmingham, occupied the plant, set up 24-hour guards to prevent parts or bikes being moved. So massive union um, action there. This blew up into a well-publicised crisis involving government mediators, ministers, also a huge national political crisis. And a Prime Minister Heath announced a snap general election on the slogan of who runs the country in the 70s. The answer was quite clear that he didn't, as Labour won with a small majority. The minister then who had to deal with the Meridian crisis was Wedgwood Ben, an arch-socialist who believed the unions should take over many industries. He supported Meridian merit rebels in their illegal grab of the plant to give them money to set up a separate factory in opposition to Nortian Villian's triumph. After months of arguments and proposed solution, MBT ran out of funds, put BSA and Norton Villians into receivership. Manganese Bronze kept a survival company that received most of the engineers to develop new bikes and find a means of survival at the same time as assisting receivers in disposing 6,000 bikes worldwide and making some 7,000 people redundant and selling all property. Uh, so during this hiatus, it's quite a dramatic time, you arranged to start a management buyout with the benefit of the BSA name on a joint 50-50 basis with Bertie Goodman, who'd owned the Veselette Motorcycle Company since deceased. Uh, you worked well together with Bertie supplying the engineering. You developed a 50cc moped easy rider, mainly from components bought in Italy, and 125-75cc off-road motorcycling using the Yamaha engine. You had some success later on an army contract for 2,500 bikes based on the Kaman bike with British Editions. So after five years, Barty wanted to retire and his Simon took over his share, but it didn't work. And you agreed to split the company and merge with another lifeweight company, Anto Van Orton, owned by Mike Jackson, with whom you'd worked in California. You're approached by Dave Bennett of Regal Engineering Southampton, who's prepared to buy both companies and was interested in the BSA name. And you and Mike were paid uh, 40,000 per annum for five years with no specific work to do. So in this void, you arranged to purchase some aluminium garment furniture from a firm you dealt with in China who bought, bought motorbike designs from you. These castings are amazingly cheap designed uh, and designing what you wanted to build up a very profitable business selling direct to customer through big flower shows like Chelsea Flower Show. You did this in partnership with Martin Hitchman, a talented salesman who built over turnover in excess of 2 million. Martin was killed in a skiing accident and son took over 50% of the business and you decided to sell your share back to the company for 485,000 having reached the age of 72 in 2006. So you continued as non-executive director of Easy Ride Europe Limited importing small motorcycles from China. Uh, you've since resigned as director but continue to hold 50% of my name rights from the Easy Rider name. So I'll just summarise uh, summarized in, in five, ten minutes, but the, there's clearly about eight different stages of your life. The early years, Farley Farm, 
and we'll mention how you met mom as well, the school days in Forest and Arundel, the national service in Hong Kong, and then going to Japan and Mount Fuji, and then starting in Oxford doing PPE. And then the, the, the firms you work for, Manganese Bronze, Lucas Industries, and Rustin, by, is it Bysaris, isn't it? So Bysaris, yeah. And then you went to California with McNaughton Villiers. And then um, we had the Meridian occupation with the workers in the plant in Coventry in the 1970s, then working for BSA, then working for Cotswold Garden. And we'll talk about some of the houses as well. So um, tell us about uh, what it was like. Uh, tell us what it was like growing up in a farm, kind of in the pre-war days. Uh, and then actually during, what was it like work, uh, growing up in the Second World War? Uh, well, it was an ideal childhood, really. But uh, we were each, um, my mother's very hard working and uh, she bred a lot of horses to the point that my father got slightly concerned. You'll probably understand that breeding can get out of control. But anyway, he organized a stock take and found out that there were 50 horses. And so they decided to have a cull and got rid of quite a few. But, um, so, but it, it was a lovely childhood and we all ran around on ponies uh, in the local forests. And we had battles with the local village boys who set up traps and used to um, catapult stones from trees as we went along, and, or even dug a pit, covered it with branches so that our horses would fall into this and we'd be thrown off, and they would then punch us up. So it was quite a, a tough sort of off breed at the same time as being a lot of fun. Um, and uh, the trip to Switzerland was amazing. I can just remember that. We had a marvelous. Um, nurse called Emily who came back and looked after Elizabeth in her latter years. Uh, really delightful Swiss woman who uh, took care of everything more or less. So that was it. It was a, a lovely childhood and then the war came along and everything changed. So there's food rationing during the war and then kind of you know it was like sort of uh, government controlled country and uh, did you see spitfires in the air or, you know, what, what were some of the memories of the war? Uh, well, we did have two encounters with enemy aircraft. Uh, one, very late one night, there was a sort of a big thud and the plane went over very low. Uh, we didn't know what it was. It was in the night and um, in the morning, uh, we notified the local police who sent up the local Bobby on his bicycle who went to examine this thud. And it turned out to be that the plane was offloading a whopping red sea mine, which it was carrying, in order to get a way out over the back to Germany, presumably. And um, so the Bobby who went to look at this said, uh, if, if, um, if I don't come back, just notify the station. <laughs> How uh, Wiltshire would have known if he'd set the bomb off. But anyway, the army were brought in to set it off eventually. And it made a whopping red crater, which we used as a swimming pool. And it blew chunks of clay for miles all around. We had to evacuate while they did all this. So that was the, the other encounter with the enemy aircraft was, um, I suppose I was about five at the time, uh, six, maybe seven. And the plane came over very low, right over the house. And I ran out to wave at it, thinking, you know, not thinking what it was. And my mother screamed at me to come in, realized that it was a German plane with a chap sitting at the back with a Yikes. gun pointing <laughs> straight at me. And it also was trying to get away. It had obviously been damaged. It crashed about 10 miles later. And we all went to see, they were all killed. And we went to see the wreckage sometime later, and there was this wrecked German Fokker plane, I think it was. Wow. Um, so that was it. But um, otherwise, the war, as a child, it was great fun. You know, you were, you're away from all the fighting and right was, in the countryside. You yeah. thought it was all sort of big game, really. Yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, but uh, not so for Bobby, who. Uh, I think he might have been sent to McGill, it's pronounced by the way. Yeah. Uh, I think they might have sent him there, thinking it might get him out of the war, but 
he, he signed up for Canadian Air Force. But he didn't like the idea of that and signed yeah. up straight away. He survived the war. And yes, he was trained in Canada until 1942. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he came over, so he missed the Battle of Britain, which almost certainly would have killed him. Uh, but it, and he did survive something like 50 missions, mainly running over France to shoot up trains and things like that. Um, uh, I plan to write up a sort of story of his involvement because uh, I think it's a story that needs telling. Now, just jumping forwards a bit before we get to prep school, and where did you meet Mum, and when was the first time that you met Mum? Was uh, it a skiing holiday, wasn't it? Yeah, not much later. I didn't get yeah. until I was 42. Yeah. Was so, it a skiing holiday that you met? Yes, yes. And uh, what were the circumstances? Uh, I think that there was a sort of snow blizzard going on, and yeah. uh, I sort of thought this uh, girl needed help. So. <laughs> I um, and we were going up a ski lift into a thick sort of fog. I thought we'd better get off this and find our way down before we get stuck up much higher in a thick blizzard. And uh, so I fell off, but uh, she didn't fall, went on right to the top. And then (laughs) eventually we sort of met up uh, much later and she found her way down somehow. Um, but anyway, that was that, and uh, he did get married in 1976. Was it 1976? 76, yeah. 76, yeah. yeah. Um, and so during the Second World War, um, the prep school was moved from Swanage into the yes. into the mainland, just in case you know for security. So what was it like being at prep school? And it was for us, yeah. It was in Swanage, and then they moved out, and then back again. Yes, they. Um... They, they <clears throat> were evacuated to Penn House, which is a rather luxurious house, lots of carpets and things, mm-hmm. and um, which had been lent to the school. Um, I'm not sure who owned it, but anyway, uh, the only trouble was that all the flying bombs that were aimed at London, if they overshot, they got the range slightly wrong, they all landed in our vicinity of, <laughs> around Amersham. And, um, so that uh, we were spent a lot of nights in the shelter uh, because of these flying bombs they were shooting their target. But eventually we, we did go back to Swanage and it was a super place because uh, you were on the beach and uh, bathing and sailing and all sorts of things. So you went on a steam train from uh, London Waterloo. So yeah, pretty, that pretty was normal. Yes. Pretty iconic. And it was pretty strong Christian school service every day. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we were expected to know the Lord's Prayer, and I was rehearsed on this going across London in a taxi before I thought I could say it when I arrived. Um, but it was a good school. They had a very tragic accident long after I left, actually, in that um, the boys were out for a walk and they set off one of the mines that were still in the cliffs, and five boys were killed. And it, I think it yeah. sort of um, that more or less wiped the, I think that the headmaster couldn't take it, you know, I think he retired after that. And uh, the school's not going now, we yeah. visited it with mum uh, later on, and it's a disabled person school. So. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to Arundel, age 13? Yes, yeah. 13 or 14. Yeah, so there was a there was a housemaster called Drip, and what, what were some of the antics that you got? That's easy, well, he was yeah. a delightful chap, and he, um, he used to waffle on quite a bit, which is how he got the nickname. But one of the things he said was that uh, if I've told you this story before, I'll just rattle the inkwells. We, in those days, we had inkwells in the desk. <laughs> and uh, and so we did that. Uh, if he's telling a story he told five times before, we'd rattle the things and he'd just quietly change tack. <laughs> and he was a delightful man, actually, and uh, was a very good history teacher. And that, uh, he sort of uh, made it interesting. And, uh, so what were some of the best memories from uh, boarding school? Um, I suppose friendships I made and kept, um, except for David Jennings. Uh, I was in a very bright intake in my house and the th- three of the boys were, became head of school. Uh, 
ancestral prefix, which is a sort of height of what you could achieve. And uh, well, it's only a house prefix, but um, so that I was sort of slightly dominated by these rather brilliant boys who got scholarships to Cambridge. Yeah. And, and uh, one of them really went on to become quite eminent in the metal metallurgy world. Mm -hmm. I was a director of Rolls Royce and all sorts of things. But, uh, uh, but anyway, I, I, I didn't excel at anything particularly at Iowa, but I quite enjoyed it in the end. And um, I was always quite glad to get home for the holidays. But, but I didn't sort of hate it like some people do. <laughs> yeah. So it was rowing. You did rowing at school. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so row on a rather narrow river for mean uh, we only just sort of managed to get a eight going along but uh, we used to go uh, compete against other schools and uh, even went to uh, Henley at one point and then you sung the kind of Handel's Messiah in Peaceburg Cathedral didn't you and the workshops as well in the school yeah the workshops were yeah. really good actually um, I don't think they do it now um, I don't think they did it like that when you were there, yeah. you had to spend a week of every term in the workshops, and actually it was quite good fun. And you learned to cast metal and uh, lace and uh, carpentry and so on. So that it, it was a very good background in all of that, and um, that was a, it was really a school for sort of middle class Birmingham industrialists. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a lot of sort of uh, people there who were sons of famous firms like Kunzel Cakes and mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Um, they uh, it wasn't a sort of a, like Winchester or Eaton where we were sort of political. It was very much industrial based school. Yeah. So what were the workshops like? You kind of had carpentry and then they were very metalworks, very yeah. advanced for a school at, okay. at that yeah. time. And I believe today are even more so. They're sort of very high tech. Yeah. No, but um, and then you had the whole school, uh, all the boys singing at Peterborough Cathedral. That yeah, must be pretty that, special. That was amazing. Memorable yeah. moment. Yeah. We all went in a whole fleet of double decker buses and <laughs> sang the most raw. <laughs> awful sort of rugger songs on the way there and on the way back and then that sort of poke face seeing you'll be on a mouse while you were there. <laughs> so were there much antics or people quite well behaved at school? Oh there were the usual sort of uh, scandals of various yeah. things. Uh, quite a lot of homosexuality I suppose you'd have to say including one or two of the masters mm -hmm. who were notorious. <laughs> <laughs> But um, that was sort of all fairly normal in those days. And this was 50s or 40s, 50s, yeah. Yeah, 50s. 50s, 50, yeah. Uh, I was at Arundel, 48 to 53. Yeah. So when you left Arundel, you went straight into compulsory national military service. Yes, you got called up. So, I mean, I guess the rationing carried on after the Second World War for like 10, 20 years or something? No, about five years. Five years. So yeah. this, is, this is eight years after the end of the Second World War. And it sounds like a pretty plush set up in Hong Kong. Um, five weeks on a boat to get there and in charge of the light, lights in Hong Kong. So it must have been life of Riley. Yes, um, it was. It was very enjoyable and uh, very uh, good sort of to have that amount of responsibility at that age. And uh, I remember organising a map reading exercise uh, where everybody had to get to a certain point where they would get the next reference to get to the next point. And I failed to notice that there was a great river running right through the middle of this area. <laughs> and so nobody arrived because they couldn't get across this river. And, uh, that was a bit of a disaster. Because <laughs> uh, Hong Kong wouldn't have been built up in those days, in the 50s, because they didn't have, the, they didn't have any skyscrapers. No, no, it was, it was just like a, it was a colony. It was a colony, it was a colony but, but nothing, nothing of, like today. Yeah. A huge influx of immigrants okay. getting out of China. Yeah. Uh, either for a better life, uh, which they didn't always find because they lived in tenements and, yeah. uh, you know, basic accommodation. But, 
one of the amusing things there was we were asked to test a, a pack of army rations. <laughs> and uh, we volunteered to do this, thinking this would be a good ruse. We'd get off for two weeks sailing and uh, take the pack and live off the pack and write a report on what was in it. And unfortunately, we camped on an island and the whole pack was stolen the first night. <laughs> And we luckily had the list of what was in the pack. And so we wrote a totally fictitious report <laughs> uh, and lived on fish and eggs, which we bought locally for the rest of the two weeks. And, uh, that was a bit disgraceful, really. <laughs> so the British-Chinese relationship was probably hostile at the time, but there was no prospect of the Chinese actually invading. It wasn't so, even hostile. I okay, mean, all right, um, yeah. You had to be rather careful not to stray into there. Yeah territorial waters, otherwise you might get whipped off. Yeah. Um, and so you were very careful not to sail into the wrong area. But yeah. Um, but you were right alongside and you could see across the border quite clearly. And there were trains trundling out through all the time. Okay. Uh, which was their main outlet of yeah. um, exports, which it was only four or five years after the Mao took over. So it was quite, you know, wow. It was still huge poverty in China at the time. Yeah. And people were still plowing the fields with oxen and all that sort of thing. So you'd had a life of Riley there, officers mess, dinner every night. You had your own driver, you're in charge of uh, charge of men. Yes. You'd had a time of your life, probably. Yes. Yeah. I had to report to a rather dire Yorkshireman who was the sort of company commander. But, um, but apart from that, uh, made a lot of friends most of us were national service people so we didn't take it all too seriously and just there for the fun really <laughs> brilliant <laughs> and then you went to japan for two weeks yes uh climbed mount fuji yeah we climbed mount fuji and in your pajamas well we we took a uh we got a lift on a troop ship yeah which you would do for 10 pounds or something and we landed at Kobe in the south of Japan and took an overnight train uh, to Fuji, which we assumed was where Mount Fuji was, and uh, got out of the train. Of course, nobody speaks English at all, and they just burst into giggles. Just the sight of an English person was so unusual that <laughs> they thought we were extremely funny to look at, particularly the women. And, uh, Anyway, we saw a bus with a picture of Mount Fuji on the side, so we chased after we got on it, and sure enough, it went up about 5,000 feet. And then we started walking up a very, basically a cinder path. It's just a huge great flag heap of cinders, really. Yeah. And uh, every 1,000 feet, there's a hut saying, you better stay here, because the next hut's closed. And uh. We ignored this for couple of times and then it turned out to be true the next hut was closed <laughs> they went back down to the hut and sat with a big grin on it so he said yeah, i told you <laughs> did you get to the top uh yeah we got up at sort of three in the morning it was pretty cold yeah because you're twelve thousand feet and yeah. so we wore pajamas over everything else and, um uh, but sadly the it was especially a marvellous view of the sunrise at the top, but we'd never got it because it was totally clagged out. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes, we got to the top, and then you have a stain down. You just put one foot in and you slide about six metres, and, and the other foot, and so on, all the way down. You arrive totally covered in black <laughs> cinders. It's a, had a, a marvellous sort of a steam bath at the bottom. Wow. <laughs> but... Uh, Japan was very basic in those days. Everything was amazingly cheap. Yeah. And uh, it was way before it had developed into a sort of yeah. industrial base. So you took a five-week boat from London to Hong Kong. That, that was a troop ship. I'm, yeah, not troop sure ship. It, I'm not sure what you called the Windrush. Really? Okay. It was the Windrush. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, it was a rusty old thing. Yeah. Chugged along at about 12 knots. So you must have been bored silly five weeks on a boat. <laughs> yeah. And cramped into a cabin yeah. with about four other people. And then coming home from Hong Kong, you went to Australia, New Zealand, kind of went home the other way around the world. Yeah. So I got yeah. discharged in Hong Kong to yeah. um, merchant boat down to 
through the Borneo, and that was a good trip, actually, and all the way down the Australian coast from Cairns to Queensland and so on, and ended up in Sydney, and took a train out to, I had an introduction to this sheep farm way out in the middle of New South Wales, and I got on this little chug-chug train, just a diesel car, I think, mm -hmm. and I got out where I was stationed, I was told, and as the train, it was just getting dark, and the train disappeared down the track, and not a sign of anybody in any direction mm. uh, for about half an hour. And I thought, bloody hell, you know. <laughs> and I could hear sort of animals beginning to howl. You know. <laughs> and eventually, this trail of dust came over the horizon. Chap said, Sorry, I'm late, mate. I'll uh, hit a tree coming along and uh, Hold me up a bit, but uh, hop in. <laughs> and they were delightful. I had a really good stay there. And uh, How long did you stay there for? About six weeks. Or yeah. so. And uh, went around on motorbikes and things. Uh, it was a huge, great 40 acres, 40,000 acre stud farm. Uh, about one sheep every mile. You know, it's amazingly sparse vegetation. And, uh, they seem to make a living out of it and very self-reliant sort of people you know they're miles 40 miles from any shop of any sort mm -hmm. the nearest town was a place called hay uh, the rhyme that goes hey helen Uligan are three hottest places under the sun I think. <laughs> so that was that and uh, then I went on to New Zealand and yeah. saw a lot of, we had a lot of cousins, the Pauls all emigrated to uh, yeah. New Zealand just after the war. People we lived next to at uh, uh, And uh, the father died of pneumonia, mm -hmm. as people did in those pre-war days before yeah. penicillin and all that. Mm -hmm. And so they were rather short of funds and they decided to up and out to New Zealand and they all uh they're all there today. They're yeah. bred like rabbits with lots of them. And, mm -hmm. uh, most of them have done pretty well. Yeah. So then you came back to the UK and then you went to Oxford and did PPE and they uh Yes. That was the 50s, still the 50s? Uh yes, about 58. I 58. So you did two years PPE and then didn't finish uh and you kind of went straight into yeah, straight into the working world. Probably that, that was a mistake. I probably I yeah. should have finished it off, but yeah. I was in wanted to get on with life and yeah. I didn't sort of want fright yeah. sort of uh, keen on uh, mm -hmm. uh, academic work having had two years sort of yeah with a good life in the army. Mm -hmm. And um so you didn't really enjoy academic life? No, I regret it yeah. now because uh having done a lot of courses in Oxford lately, I, yeah. I sort of realised I rather missed out. And I think rowing was a mistake because it took up so much of your time yeah, and a lot more interesting things you could have been doing. Sure. So I, I regret that I didn't spend you know, the full term there. Um, but there we are. I, I got a lot out of it and made some very good friends. Yeah. Uh, including two Americans who I was talking about with today. Which is... Um... Peter Payne. Peter Payne and, yeah. um, and uh, Roger Stang. Yeah. And so what was Oxford like in the 50s, kind of? Well, it was male-dominated. Yeah. There were uh, girls' colleges, but... Uh, you Balliol College, was that? Um, which college? Uh, I was at Pembroke. Pembroke College. Pembroke which was college, a sort yeah. of poor man's college. It wasn't okay. like... It wasn't a posh college like yeah. Christchurch. Uh-huh. And... Uh, uh, I, I, I made some good friends, actually, and uh, I got a lot out of it. Uh, but um, slightly could have got more. But <laughs> mm -hmm. So when you left, did you do agricultural college as well for a short while? I did a fill in, yeah. Yeah, I had to wait, yeah. I wait okay, about yeah. nine months to get to Orchard, so I did a short course at Sirencester, which yeah. was, uh, where all sort of... Uh, Bigger states used to send their sons <laughs> try and learn something about agriculture. And then you kind of went into went into the working world. Then after you left left university, yes. And uh, then it was Lucas Industries, and then 
Rustus by by Cyrus. So there were two um, engineering firms. It, it'd been arranged that I wouldn't go into making these bronze eventually. And um, was your father still there at the time, or yes, yeah, so he said he was thought, still there. I thought it was a good idea to go and get some experience elsewhere, which was a good idea, and yeah. I did get you know good funding in uh, sort of audit work uh, with Lucas, where yeah. I'd go around different factories and look at a particular area of their operations and sort of write a critical report of how it could be done better or not mm-hmm. And Ruston Brutalis, which was a mechanical engineering place, uh, made excavators <clears throat> since, well, they're taken over by JCB. But, yeah. Um, but both of those were about 18 months or so in each, and it was well yeah. worth doing. And then I did join Mainly's Bronze and did a whole trip around the whole, about five factories all around the country. Yeah. Quite a big company. So what point. exactly did they do? Right. Uh, well, their main job was making ship's propellers. Yeah. Um, incidentally, we better... Yeah, yeah. One second. Okay. Okay. I yeah. um, then rejoined Mainly's Bronze and went round all the factories on a sort of learning mission to see all the processes. The main product was ship's propellers mm-hmm. uh, at that time. And uh, uh, the having done this tour of the whole factory and spent some time studying all the processes there, uh, including one up in Glasgow making ships whistles, um, and Ipswich where they did uh, extruded non-ferrous metals and oil-like powder bearings. Every car has about twelve of these. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I joined as PA to the managing director, a chap called John Neville, who was a very nice man. Yeah. I've got on with him extremely well. And I would have followed him uh, to, run, charge. Yeah. to run the company eventually. That was sort of How many great. staff did they have? Oh, in all the factories, yeah. I suppose about 10,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, that was how things happened in those days. You sort of were found a job, so to speak. Um, Horrifying to the people today. It was all kind of nepotism and sort of. Uh, well, it wasn't all. Yeah, that, the family firm. Yeah. Uh, people brighten up with a lot of inefficiency. Yeah. British firms. And partic- you know. Yeah. Particularly the city was full of it. And yeah. Stockbrokers were just full of yeah. sons of many of whom were pretty useless. <laughs> uh, that was why in. Said it was such a soft target with it yeah. when it came to the takeover by all the Swiss bank, Big Bang, and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, which was obviously a good thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was all lined up for this, and sadly, John Neville got a brain tumor, and that uh, reduced his ability. And a chap called Dennis Port took over. Yeah, and he totally altered the whole structure of the firm and sold off. Uh, the propeller business mm-hmm. because British shipbuilding was in decline, the Japanese were taking over all the time, and bought two bankrupt firms, uh, Associated Motorcycles, which had all the names that had all collapsed into it, like Norton and AJS and Francis Barnett and Matchless, and in a very old fashioned factory down in Woolwich. And also Villiers Engineering, which made small industrial engines, mainly every lawnmower had one and so on. Yeah. And uh, the idea was to build this up into a, a viable thing. And we did come up with a, a very good bike, the Norton Commando, mm-hmm. which for two or three years was an absolute world beater. Yeah. And uh, I was sent off to California to set up a distribution because the the importer in the states had done very poor so you finished at manganese bronze then when you moved to california well it was all owned by manganese bronze but it oh, was, right, okay but it yeah. was a subsidiary called norton billiards i see all right okay. a combination of these two made about um, industrial engine companies yeah sorry just to recap so john neville kind of took over the firm but that meant that you weren't going to be and running running the firm at that point and so you kind of moved to move back to california dennis, dennis poor took over the company. dennis poor took over yeah so um and uh uh so then you decided to move out to um 
to California. Well, I was asked to go and yeah. do it, and it was a good experience, actually, because it yeah. went extremely well. It was dead easy. Uh, everyone wanted to buy it. It was just a question of organising the queue. So this is 1970s California, and you're selling motorbikes. Yes. Yeah, so uh, a winning, a winning motorbike. Mid-60s to early 70s. Okay, yeah. And you're selling a, just a motorbike that everybody wants, and you're in charge of sales for the whole west of the country. Yes. Uh, um, having a time of your life in California. Uh, is it the Flower Power's 70s? or what? It was very much yeah. at that time. You okay. know, so I was like... a rather square sort of Englishman. <laughs> went down quite well, actually. People loved it. So so it love your action. You know. Hippies and Flower Power was kind of... And the Vietnam War was going on or not? Yes, I think yeah? it was. Okay. So um, that... I wasn't particularly aware of it. but Well, that was later in the 70s, yeah, maybe. But I so, travelled yeah. all over the Western half of America, which was great. And, uh, yeah. I would just sort of set off one Monday and get on a plane, hire a car, and go and appoint a lot of dealers and uh, come back with an order book of you know, that many commandos. And uh, uh, it was sort of money for old rope, really. Uh, but I enjoyed America. I found them very the ordinary working class American, very courteous, polite people, and uh, mm -hmm. very friendly, really. And um, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but after two or three years, I began to sort of pause and I uh, sort of found everything a bit mundane. And I was sort mm -hmm. of logging to get back to English and... Uh, homesick, yeah. Not homesick so much as sort of uh, uh, just rather bored with American banality and... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lack of culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, Los Angeles is the ultimate sort of yeah. industrial estate, really. <laughs> <laughs> so you were there three years in total in America. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And then based in California, but you travelled all over the West. Yeah. West of the country. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I lived sort of on the job. We had a little yeah. wooden house alongside this great big warehouse where we kept all the bikes. And... So sales went from three thousand three hundred fifty per annum to seven thousand per annum in that time. So just the whole work just went completely so, crazy. Yes. So uh, you're uh, pointing dealers, travelling around, so, travelling salesmen, just that kind of thing, or or you're, you're travelling, appointing well, people? Well, we were a team of yeah. um, something like seven or eight people. Okay. I had to find a service manager and a parts person and an accountant and so on. So I was yeah. in charge of all that, which was a good experience. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we had a really nice team of people, actually, and enjoyed it, and we've when things had gone very well, we sort of took the whole team up to Las Vegas for a sort of weekend, uh, uh, which was amazingly cheap, you know, for hundred pounds, you could get three nights in Las Vegas, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, they hoped you'd spend a lot more. But, um, but anyway, I traveled around, saw a lot of America and met a lot of American people. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, appointed one of our dealers to take over my job, John, yeah. called Roger Stang, who I've stayed in touch with to this day. Yeah. And really nice, competent man who had been a bank manager and become a motorbike dealer mm -hmm. and um, fancied the job of running the distribution. And he was very good, actually. So I then came back to England and I was in charge of all sales for the company all, all over the world. This is for Norton, yeah? This is Norton Beers, yes. Yeah. Um, so then you were global head of sales for Norton. Yes. Yeah. And then the crash came in that the BSA Triumph, who are our biggest sort of competitor, went yep. bust. Okay, and yeah. And we were approached to take over the company yep. in the hope of saving the industry. And this is 1970? About 72, something like okay. that. Okay, so there's a big uh, recession and then... BSA goes past the it wasn't the recession they just yeah. sort of were outplayed by the Japanese and okay. we were producing bikes far cheaper and yeah. in much bigger numbers. So this is British manufacturing kind of decline. Yes. Yeah. Incidentally, the BSA company used to make a hundred thousand bikes, not ten thousand. Okay. That was a typo. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, the uh, things sort of began to go wrong in the our plan, we had to come up with a plan as to mm -hmm. how the industry was going to survive. And we obviously had to get new designs because everything was a bit old. Yeah. And so we set about that. And uh, the overall 
big plan was to shut one of the three factories and put everything into the other two. Mm -hmm. And that didn't work because the Triumph factory out of Maryland refused to be shut. And they, uh, although most people accepted their redundancy or offer of jobs at the other factories, yeah, uh, a, a gang of about 400 union-based rebels decided to object and occupied the factory, occupied the factory locked the gates, <laughs> had a brazier going 24 hours a day, manned all the time to make sure nobody got in. And um, we were locked out, and, uh, <laughs> which wasn't uncommon in the 70s. Uh, there was quite a bit of that going on. There was a famous shipyard that, yeah. that did the same thing. And, and uh, Dennis Poor, who was sort of dealing mainly with the ministers, but I got involved in a bit of that. Mm -hmm. and including meetings with Wedgwood Ben and so on. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk and how we would sort of work with the rebels and so on. Um, but the Tory government fell in the middle of all this and the man whose job it was to sort it out was an arch socialist called Wedgwood Ben. <laughs> and... Um, Bad luck. <laughs> Uh, he immediately backed the rebels, said, this is, this is what we want, you know, workers taking over the factories, <laughs> unions in charge, uh, which is his whole philosophy. Uh, he, it was a disaster. And, um, well, it wasn't, for, amazingly, they, they were able to go on producing bikes, and we sort of cooperated uh, to some extent, uh, and there were plans of how we would work the two things, and they pump in more money, but in the end, they just pump more money into the rebels and not to us. <laughs> and eventually they took away our export credits, which were a system whereby you could uh, finance a bike as soon as it came off the line and pay it back when the dealer paid for it at the other end. Mm. Uh, and they took that away, which meant, I don't know if they realized what they were doing, and it was, incredible to deal with sort of government people who were a dishonest and also incompetent so just to recap you were on the management of a um a management of a motorcycle manufacturing plant in coventry that was illegally occupied by the workers you then had a socialist government who backed the workers illegally occupying the plant. Yes, I mean, it was a bizarre <laughs> and traumatic situation. Uh, so this was a national uh, scandal. It was a... It there were three factories, yeah. one in Birmingham, BSA, yeah. one mm -hmm. in Wolverhampton, Villiers, yeah. and Meriden Triumph. And the decision to shut the Triumph factory because it was over, you know, they were paid far more than the other factories. Yeah. They were very unionised and um, uncooperative. Uh, but they were offered jobs at the other factories, but they didn't accept it. And um, yeah. it was a traumatic thing, particularly when the government of the day came in and backed them. <laughs> back to um, back the illegal occupation. And it was yeah. on the sort of national news yeah. nightly for quite a while. And Dennis Poor got a lot of sort of a bad press being a, as a sort of asset stripper, you know, someone who... Uh, he, just, he was the bad management, was he? Yeah. He was a chap who just got yeah. into his strip the assets and yeah. get rid of the jobs. And So what happened in the end? Did they close it or what? how uh, well, did they, it end? In, yeah. in the end, um, BSA Triumph, as it was now called, went ran out of money and decided mm -hmm. to put the other two plants into receivership. Yeah. And the co-op went on for another couple of years, amazingly, yeah. mm -hmm. but also packed up in the end. Okay, yeah. And all the sort of uh, union people sort of lost interest in it. <laughs> <laughs> so they basically ran it into the ground. Yeah, yeah. it was the most disgraceful thing. And yeah. our survival plan was never given a chance. Yeah. Uh, it might have worked, it might not. And it, yeah. uh, uh, the trouble is British industry was so war-worn, you know, run-down yeah. plant, run-down attitudes, yeah. that um, uh, it has since been proved by the John Bloor property billionaire who mm -hmm. bought the right to the Triumph name yeah. and set up a totally new plant, went to Japan, said, how do you do this? And got all the machine tools and everything and, and still going today as Triumph. Is this plant in Japan or in the UK? He has a plant in Taiwan. I okay, think. yeah. And 
also in Thailand, I think. Um, yeah. But it also puts the bikes together in, in yeah. uh, uh, north of Cromwell or something. But uh, he's shown that he put about a hundred million pounds into it, which of course was money we never had. Mm. And it was the sort of money that was needed to sort of just take it by the scruff of the neck and yeah. totally revamp it. So this was 70s Britain, British manufacturing was in decline. Yes. And then the Meridian factory would have closed. And he got married in 76 as well. Yes. Yeah, so I moved to Handy Water kind of up at that time as well. So I bought Handy Water yeah. just before I got married as a as a ruined house which I've yeah. been lived in since the war. And I lived in the um utility sort of 40s house that the farmer had built yeah. on the same land. And uh, and then my mother moved into the utility house. Mm -hmm. For a couple of years in then in her high 80s yeah and uh i moved into the farmhouse and shortly after that i got married and uh then we had three building sessions at the handywall house at handywall farm yeah so it's a derelict um, farmhouse and did it up yeah we had three yeah. sort of sessions of building one just to build what was there yeah basically a two down two up and a barn in line mm -hmm. and then we converted the barn and then we converted the cow shed which went down one side mm -hmm. uh, and uh it made a you know fabulous house for a young family and you bet. uh sue took hold of the garden made out of fields you know made it from nothing it's great and um and then it was uh too big and we decided to sell and move into the utility house at the top and then get permission to pull that down and build a, a modern house, which Timothy um, Cahoon designed, which was a totally modern house uh, and made a fabulous, modern, comfortable house for the next mm -hmm. 15 years. And, yeah. And then I sold that last year. So. Yeah. And so, um... When the factory closed in Coventry, and then what happened after that? So after Meridian, it kind of went BSA. Yes. So you joined BSA. Kind uh, of... There was a sort of lifeboat. Yeah. It was down, and uh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, I agreed to do a sort of what was called a management buyout. With, yeah. Um, a chap called Bertie Goodman, who yeah uh, was apparently had owned the Velocet motorbike company, a well-known mm -hmm. bike actually. Yeah. Which had also. Failed, uh, failed to survive. Yeah. Um, but he was a really nice bloke to work with and was very much more experienced than I was, really. Yeah. And he did the engineering side and I did the commercial side. Mm -hmm. And we, we built up a small little company. Yeah. Wasn't overly successful because um, we were selling a, we put together a 50cc moped bought mainly from parts in Italy, which still had an industry. Mm hmm. And also uh, using a Yamaha engine for a 125, 175 trail bike. And yeah. these were sort of moderately successful, but not hugely so. And then we had a big army contract. And um, and then Bertie Goodman resigned. It, it was retired, really. Yep. His son took over, and we didn't hit it off at all. And so we decided mm -hmm. just part company. Yeah. And I tied up with Mike Jackson, who I had worked with in California. Yep. Who had a, another survivor lifeboat company <laughs> um, floating around those lifeboats all over the place. Yeah. And um, we formed um, his form was called Andover Norton, and he was a motorbike tires mainly, but also other parts. And we bought the right to the Norton Spares business from uh, the survivors of the, the main lifeboat mm -hmm. uh, and we were approached by a firm in Southampton called Regal Engineering mm -hmm. who agreed to buy the, buy the whole lot including the Norton Spares business and the BSA name yeah. which is what they were really interested in and they call themselves BSA Regal and to this day their vans are seen running around Southampton they, they do um, electrical and plumbing and it still goes to this day still still yeah, right yeah. yeah and uh general engineering and very successful and they they succeeded in very cleverly in selling the bsa name to a firm in india mm -hmm. who are putting it on a bike now 
and I think they did very well out of that. But uh, uh, David Bennett, who runs it, was a pretty clever bloke, actually. Yeah. Um, kind of went, had to go to India many times and deal with a lot of corrupt sort of practices and so on. But, um, anyway, that was that. And uh, the uh, so we accepted this buyout, basically. Yeah. And we were paid off. Uh, with good salary at the time for five years. Yeah. And during that time, I got going on the, um, I wasn't really given anything to do. So, yeah. Uh, That's where you go into Cotswold. I got furniture, yeah. Start your own business. I got in touch with the uh, yeah. Chinese who we dealt with previously. And mm -hmm. I found it really easy to deal with, actually, nice to deal with. And we imported some of this. Um, we had done a motorbike design for them. And at the end of that, they, prior to all this takeover and everything. And prior to that, they, um, they said, uh, well, why don't you have a go at some of this garden furniture, which we also do. We sort of turned our noses up, say, you know, well, we're engineers, we don't do sort of trade like that. <laughs> uh, and they said, well, we'll send you three containers to see how you get on. And it was so cheap. Uh, it sold very easily and very, with a huge profit and we yeah. had designed it if we designed this stuff the way we wanted it and got them to make it we, we had a real good business on our hands and um, it went very well and uh and then i sort of eventually sold out of that when i was about 72 and so martin was your business partner and he he was a phenomenal salesman and he yes, built he, the company up to two really million a year built yeah. up the sales and um I just sort of did the commercial side and the buying and all that. Yeah. Visiting China. And, and um, it was very successful. It made, uh, you know, very good profits for two or three years. And then he said it was killed in a skiing accident. A freak skiing accident out yeah, of the blue. He just hit a lot of rocks just yeah. underneath the snow, hit his chest. Oh, yeah. And by the time they got him down, he was dead. Tremendous. Yeah. And, uh, so that was that, a shock, yeah. And then... Uh, his son inherited the sort of other half of the business mm -hmm. and we didn't really hit it off that well. And uh, I agreed that the company should buy in my half, which was yeah. quite successful. It was sort of half a million because mm -hmm. uh, it was, had done so well. And yeah. that was, we had it professionally valued and everything. And uh, and so I bowed out at that point. Yeah, retired age 70, 72, 72 yeah. retired, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, wow, so that was quite 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 something to see uh, company grow so quickly. So uh, um, tell yes. us about, tell us about some of the um, tell us about when was the trip when um, you had a horse on a ski lift? When was that? Oh, I think uh, I put a picture of a horse in my ski pass. Okay, yeah, I've way back in my sort of youth period. Yeah. Though people sort of thought it was quite funny, but <laughs> oh, I thought you actually got a horse on a ski lift. No, no, oh, no, 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 no. Just a <laughs> picture of a horse on my ski park. Oh, right. I thought I thought you actually put a horse on a on a big ski lift. And no, took no, it no, no, no. <laughs> and what about the what about the shoes on the train as well? When when was that? Uh, that was just I happened to be going up to London on a snowy day, and uh, I. Happened to be taking some shoes hitched back to get them resold by somebody in London. Don't yeah. Know why, but I did. And so I had three pairs of shoes in a suitcase. And when somebody got in and his shoe dropped down on the rail track while he got in, and, so, <laughs> and the train went off. And there he was with one shoe on and one shoe off, wondering what the <laughs> hell he was going to do uh, when he got to London. And so I lent him a pair of shoes and he sent them back eventually. <laughs> But uh, it was sort of the funny things that happened. So, was it that manufacturing was in decline over all this period? Kind of very much so. Yeah, you know, British just... manufacturing; these factories were kind of on a, you know, a bit like coal mines, just sort of you you were there during a sort of gradual decline period. Yeah, the Thatcher years. I mean, yeah, so, she yeah. was blamed for sort of shutting everything down, but actually, yeah, were, it was in decline anyway. So they were all declining. Yeah. The Far East must have been building motorbike, making motorbikes, kind of. On mass and would have slaughtered yeah. the business eventually. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Japanese dominated shipbuilding, cameras, 
motorbikes, all sorts of things, because their labor was so cheap at the time. Yeah. Didn't know. Um, and the same reason China has risen to such heights is that the labor is so cheap, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and they've sort of got it well organized. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, um, yeah, it was a sort of natural process. And uh, I suppose it was, a, in a way, a good thing because it uh, allowed more modern sort of industries to come forward. And, yeah. Which hopefully is what's happening now, but uh, not fast enough, really. So set up at Handywater was pretty good because... Uh, Building um, houses was a sort of big feature. Of, yeah. So uh, it was idyllic fa family farmhouse and... Yeah. Grandma lived there as well for many years. Both grandparents lived on either next door or in the in the yes, flat in the end. Very good arrangement. And, and then we had a house. Yeah, it was very good too because they, yeah. they all sell for miles more than their building cost. And, yeah. Uh, so that uh, yeah, I probably made more money buying and selling houses than <laughs> anything else. But uh, and mum ran a bed and breakfast as well from from the. Yeah, she she used to do bed and breakfast for a while and then. She ran her own bed and she breakfast. She realised that the yeah. people who were interested in the garden were the sort of more interesting people and so decided yeah. to sign up, went through the list of people in the yellow pages and uh, that's a gardening visitor thing and signed up the ones who did bed and breakfast and started in a very small way, a sort of kitchen top table business mm -hmm. and it just sold itself. It took off. And, uh, bed and breakfast for garden lovers at school. Yeah, yeah. she she had a hundred members in the end. Yeah, and was very careful about making sure she got good people and visited them every year to make sure they kept up the standard and everything. And it, it built a very good reputation, probably more so than uh, the more commercially minded. Yeah, um, ones sort of I forget Woolsey lodges and that kind of people. Lodges, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And she used to do a lot of social events down in uh, Handywater as well, didn't she? So Teddy Bear's picnic and... Yes, and she was... A, a linchpin of the community, yeah. Very much took part in village activities, got to know pretty well everyone in the village. Um, was always sort of... Uh, she got on the parent... I used to the schools. Yeah. Sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, got very much involved, whereas uh, I didn't I was mainly in sort of a way or um, particularly during the Merriman crisis that was a sort of yeah very stressful time and uh, mm -hmm. I didn't sort of spend much time in going to village meetings yeah <laughs> well last year we went up that river in Suffolk called the river Deben the river Deben and that so that brought back a lot of uh, childhood memories um, of growing up on the farm Yes. Um, just off that river, you could see the house, you could see the farm, which is now a huge, huge farm. My father bought this boat, uh, yeah. which had been sitting on the mud all during the war, and uh, it was a lovely um, sloop, I think it was called, and just a mainsail on a jib, and it was a wooden boat, which had been built by a boat builder on the Deben called Wistock. And uh, we went across to Holland and down weekends we go down the coast mm -hmm. and he um that was his main sort of form of recreation he'd come down straight on the boat and yeah off we'd go. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah so that was great actually well it must be been carefree upbringing just you know pre well i, I guess the second world war was going on at that time so um well this is after yeah, the war after, after the war we yeah sailing boat we had to be yeah there were mines around. That was one of the troubles that uh, people would set mines off occasionally. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, the east coast of England is a weird, wonderful place. It's a lovely bird life, and yeah, the Walton backwaters. I remember particularly a total sort of solitude and bird life everywhere. You've actually lived in the countryside the vast majority of your life. Yes. Yeah. Apart from Los Angeles. And yeah. And I had a flat in London for while I was doing the... A few years. So you didn't get married till 42, so... 42, yeah. Yeah. That's quite late, really. Extensive bachelor. <laughs> bachelor period of life. Yeah. Well, any closing thoughts? I think that was good. We covered uh, 
we covered everything from the school days at Arundel and Forez to the National Service in Hong Kong um, to Oxford doing PPE and then um, manganese bronze and work with Norton and California to yeah, the Meridian Crisis I and then BSA my, and Cotswold Garden. Yeah. experience matched the British experience of the time when industry yeah. was declining and we, yeah. were, we were quite clearly part of that decline. But, mm -hmm. uh, in that the whole motorbike industry collapsed. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, so that, you know, you were invariably involved in all this, but uh, it was sort of how you coped with it and all the rest that mattered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now in retirement, uh, 80, 87 hours? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So next project for retirement? Well, keep on riding my electric bike. Yeah, my main form of exercise. I mean, my mobility is not that great. Uh -huh. And um, the idea to start another, build another house somewhere if I can find the right plot. But I've got sort of some ideas, but nothing firm yet. So. Cool. Well, you've been watching the Pulse, and thank you very much indeed for uh, Dad for an uh, interview. Right. Uh, fascinating, uh, fascinating life there. So we covered it all in this interview. Thanks very much, Dan, for the interview. And um, follow us next time. Uh, do have a look at some of the other interviews on the channel from Francis Hogan to Daniel O'Connor. We keep on interviewing um, exciting, interesting people. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And uh, thanks a lot to Dan. And um, look forward to seeing you next time. Great.